Thank you for playing the ladies. Let me mention a couple announcements before we begin. Jerry will read our text from the life of Christ. You will need, in your worship folder, you'll need uh, this extra uh, insert. We'll be singing that in just a bit. If you don't have one, there's some there in the back. Way of announcements, let me just mention again, uh, missions in July, hence the flags and whatnot. Be, be in prayer for that. We will have uh, a... Um, Steve McAllister, I think, is that right? Um, Isaac from this week. He's the director of AIT, Anchored in Truth um, Ministries, uh, and our mission partner. He just returned a trip from our um, missionary partner in Poland, and I'm sure we'll have much to say about the Ukrainian refugees there that they're ministering to and whatnot. So look forward to that. That'll be Wednesday, and we'll begin... Uh, talking to Steve around 6.45. I'll send out the email link, and uh, if you'll look for that, and uh, you can log in through Zoom, or there's a phone number that you can dial in. And so I appreciate all the participation that we've had, and I encourage you to continue to do it. That's really helpful. We'll start a prayer time, if you want to be a part of that, at 6.30, and that's Wednesday. If you have a prayer request, be sure to send one to us, and we'll add it to the list. You can do it, I think, prayer at grbchurch.org, or you can send it directly to me or Andy. Look forward to that. One other word of announcement, you can find some of the details downstairs on the bulletin board, or you can just ask Blake directly. But we've been praying for some time to have a children's choir would that be the best way to describe it from ages what seven to fourteen seven to fourteen and we're going to work with them twice a, a, a month and you can get the details from Blake if you want to be a part of it please let him know uh, prior to the beginning which is going to be uh, let him know by August the 7th it's the date I wrote down any case so uh, that'll be great and then I look forward to hearing from them always but this is something we're going to to do to help uh, facilitate that even more so be in prayer for that and see the details downstairs or talk directly to Blake let's go ahead and begin our worship service by reading from the life of Christ reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests, and scribes of the people, he inquired to, of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who, is, who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. 
After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed on their own to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And they went and lived in a city named Nazareth, so that <clears throat> what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let us pray and prepare our hearts to worship Christ. I'm going to give you a moment to think on these things, to prepare your heart. And then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we gather together today to worship you. I pray that you would receive our worship. I'm thankful for your sending the Son to be born, to take on human flesh, to live throughout all the years of his life to adulthood, to experience everything that we have experienced and yet without sin. I pray that we would indeed get a closer glimpse of Jesus Christ and by seeing him and knowing what has been promised and what has been accomplished and what is yet to be finalized that we would fall down and worship him in spirit and truth. I pray that you would accept our worship. 
because we have clean hearts before you, knowing that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're thankful for the guilt that is borne by Jesus Christ so we can stand before you without any condemnation. I pray for those who do not know Christ in this way, who do not have that union with Christ. I pray as they hear the word of God read, sung, prayed, and preached, even this day, that you will accomplish what you will and cause many sons and daughters to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. We're thankful for all that you have granted to us. We're thankful that you have spoken in your word and not left us without a voice of truth in a very confusing time and world. I pray, Father, that we would cling to that which is absolute truth, that is you, is revealed in your word, and we would strive to get it right. And in the degree that our feeble minds grasp, I pray that through the power of the Spirit, you will let us see the significance of all this truth and truly worship you, to truly trust you, you have accomplished and you will accomplish. And may we truly believe by faith. May we have great joy in all that has been promised to those that are in Christ. And may that joy be realized to a great degree even this day. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, Deuteronomy 31.8 says, The Lord is the one who will go before you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Let's take our hymn books and stand and turn to number 97 in our hymn books. And let's sing, we look behind at all you've done.
number 475. 475, Jesus is all the world to me. For to me to live is Christ. Philippians 121. singing this morning. Let's take our inserts out and let's, let's sing, May the Mind of Christ My Savior. Beautiful words, all six verses of May the Mind of Christ My Savior, our insert this morning.
Good morning, church. <clears throat> Please turn with me to Psalm 119. I'm going to start reading in verse 97 of Psalm 119 and continue through Psalm, uh, verse 128. <clears throat> One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And I don't think it's any mistake that it's located under none. Just saying. <clears throat> In any case, when I think of that passage, I think of all the darkness that we see from our perspective in our world. And I think of this church as a lighthouse. I think of so many who have striven and successfully taught and modeled God's word in what they say and what they do, and uh, I'm very thankful. <clears throat> I also think of how this word, God's word, the Holy Bible, points us to the one true and living word, Jesus Christ, who was in the beginning, and who was with God, and who is God. <clears throat> Today, if you do not know him, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to start reading in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Yahweh, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Yahweh, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. 
I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for Yahweh to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for your law, your commandments, your promise, your statutes, your testimonies, your judgments. I pray that they would be sweeter to us in honey and worth so much more than fine gold. I pray, Father, that when we look to Jesus Christ and think of who he is and what he has done on the cross, I pray that it would vanquish any other worries or fears, anything else that we could possibly want or need in this life, Father. I pray that they would pale in comparison. I pray that nothing would trouble us when we think of who Christ is and what he has done. I pray that you would use these offerings given today for your glory and the furtherance of your kingdom. Father, I thank you for so many that you have sent out into the field of harvest who are faithful, faithfully proclaiming your word in a dark, dark world. Please help us to be like them. Please help us to look to Christ and proclaim your word, your precious gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let's take our hymn books once more and stand and turn to one num- number 144. Beautiful words of Christ we'll sing here as we look at his attributes and praise and glory to Christ. Majestic sweetness sits enthroned. 144. We'll sing all four verses. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, Blake. And thank you, church. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1. We hope to finish this chapter today. Hebrews chapter 1. Our focus will be on the final verses of chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Let me just review... This book opens up, as I said before, it's really a sermon, apostolic sermon that would have been preached during this period of time. I think it's most likely an exemplar from Paul, recorded by Luke, and very carefully recorded. And, And I'll show you one of these careful aspects to it. There are many in the text, but it reads like a first century sermon that is put together very well, and making, if you had a single point and theme, it would be the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And really one of the most important and comforting things that we need to realize and recognize who Jesus Christ is. The author begins with seven dogmatic statements in verses 1 through 3, and emphasizes the excellency of Jesus Christ to tell that he has a name that is indeed above every name, verse 4. And then he expands that by giving seven Old Testament cross-references 
Old Testament passages that would have been known well to the first hearers of this sermon to make this point. Structurally, you can see it's, it's organized very carefully, and many uh, parts of the Bible are done just that way. We just finished reading some, a selection from Psalm 119, which if you notice, it's really an acrostic from the Hebrew alphabet, and each section done in eight sections, uh, eight verses, the beginning of the verse begins with that letter of the alphabet, the same one. It's, it's a way of making it memorable and making a good point about it. Here, in the seven Old Testament references that are given as really an answer to the rhetorical questions that are asked in this section from five to the end here, they're done not arbitrarily, but in a unique sequential way in the, which, in the way in which they're actually numbered. Now, I don't want to lead you astray into what some call numerology. That's this mysterious idea that the Bible is some sort of code book and we, we need the passcode to unlock the secrets. You don't. It's written plain. Some parts of it, yes, are difficult and will take careful study to make sure that you accurately understand the word of truth. But empowered by the Holy Spirit who enlightens the believer, what they're going to see mostly is not just the substance of what is here, but the significance. A, a, a scholar that's unregenerate can see the substance of this text and can divide it up and understand, you know, chiasm when it's given or uh, alliteration and, and so forth, the structure. But the Holy Spirit will give you the significance of this truth is why we begin with prayer, asking God to indeed illuminate our heart that we might hear from Christ. But that doesn't mean there isn't a significance to numbers that are used in the Bible in certain places. And, and here it does seem that in the structure of this sermon, the preacher of Hebrews structured his sermon in this way, and particularly these first seven points that are referenced in Scripture. A.W. Pink noticed that in his commentary and describes it this way, and I'll just quote him. He says, one is this number for supremacy. You can find that in Zechariah 14.9. There will be none other in that day to dispute the Lord's rule for Satan, he'll be in the pit. And so the first quotation here in Hebrews 1 verse 5 demonstrates the supremacy of Christ over the angels as son. Number two is the number of witness. See Revelation 3, 3. So the force of the second quotation here in Hebrews 1 is the unique relation of the son to the father who is born witness to him. Three is the number of manifestation. In the third quotation, we see the superiority of the mediator manifested by the angels worshiping him, verse 6. The number four is the number for the creature. And the fourth quotation, the Holy Spirit significantly turns from Christ, who is more than a creature, 
and dwells upon the infer inferiority of the angels, who, by the way, are creatures. Verse 7, they are made. Five is the number of grace. In the fifth quotation, it brings before us the throne of grace, our Savior. Verse 8, the throne of grace. You can find that in Hebrews 4.16. Six is the number of man. In the sixth quotation, verses 10 through 12, contains God's response to the plaint of the Son of Man's being taken away in the midst of his day. Remember that? Cut off in the midst of his day in his humanity. And then we come to seven. Our text for today and verses 13 and 14, seven, the number of completion, the number of rest, rest after a finished work. See Genesis 2, 3. And so the seventh quotation here views Christ now, notice, seated at the right hand of God, verse 13. It is a reward for his mission accomplished, his finished work. It's to this finished work of Christ to which we will turn our attention to now. To look at this royal priest, if you will, in verse 13, and his royal priesthood, who complements it in verse 14. But let me go ahead and read. I'll take the time to read the whole chapter and put this in its context since we are wrapping this chapter up. So I'll begin at the beginning, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago and at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And have, after, having made, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, and today I have begotten you? For again... I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same. And your years, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that we will get a glimpse of the glory of the Son, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, so wonderfully 
captured here in these words. May Christ be more than words to us. May he be truly life. Grant us insight to hear what the Spirit would communicate that is Christ's words to the church. I pray in his name. Amen. If you're following along here, what I'm going to at least attempt to show today from verses 13 and 14 really is kind of wrapping this chapter up before we move into the warning chapter in chapter 2. And you might want to read ahead for next week. That falls naturally on this because what, what is being emphasized is the glory of Christ, his excellency, his supremacy. And he has pounded the pulpit at least 14 times here to get it into our thick heads because we need to get a true vision of who Christ really is. He is a royal priest, the way the book of Hebrews would summarize it. And those that are connected to Jesus Christ then are his royal priesthood. Jesus is king and he's priest. And much of this talks about his work as such in his mediation between God and man. He is both, as this text would relate to us, the sovereign Lord of all. But he's also a savior who makes atonement for sin and has accomplished his work. Those who are his companions, verse 9, which would be all of those that are in Christ, as we would say, who are regenerate, who are adopted into his family, born again, various ways we would describe it, those who are his fellows, his companions, verse 9, share in the inheritance of this king. They, they are born into a royal family, if you will, and made a royal priesthood. Those in Christ triumph in the victory that is brought about by Jesus Christ. And the fact that he wins, we win because of our union with him. Let's examine first this royal priest mentioned in verse 13. The royal priest. This phrase that you'll notice here, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your, the, a footstool for your feet, is a phrase that we should be familiar with. It is Psalm 110. And you can mark this section, Hebrews 1. We'll be back. We'll go back and forth, but I do want to show you Psalm 110. I invite you to turn there now. Psalm 110, seven verses, is the most quoted in the New Testament. It's a psalm that we need to be familiar with. Jesus makes reference to it, and I'll point it out later when he confronts the Pharisees. Peter included this passage in his preaching on Pentecost. And here we have the preacher of Hebrews mentioning it as well, just by stating this phrase, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
That's the first verse of Psalm 110. If you turn there, I'll go ahead and read it. And then we want to explain it for a little bit so we'll have a better grasp on Psalm 110. Let me read the text for you from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn, and note this, verse 4, I'll get back to it, it's a key verse. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand, and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, Therefore, he will lift up his head. This Psalm 110, I would argue, if you read through the book of Hebrews carefully, I think that is the theme text of that sermon. He uses a lot of other cross-references and a lot of other imageries and ideas, no doubt, but this Psalm 110 is woven through the book of Hebrews. I'll walk you through it rather quickly, and then we'll go back to 110 and extrapolate that a little bit. But just walking through it, I want you to note two key passages. And remember, when they mention a passage from a text, like 110, it's as if we were quoting a verse, and we would know what else remains or what context that verse is in. So that's the point when they just quote the phrase. And these phrases that are quoted in Hebrews, most notably, is from verse 1, as we've just read. And it's also in verse 4, as I highlighted. In verse 1 of Psalm 10, it says, The Lord says to my Lord. The Lord says. In verse 4, the Lord then swears, makes a pledge, a guarantee, or an oath concerning the order of Melchizedek, which we'll explain in days to come in greater detail. So these two key ideas, these are two great declarations of Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand, and you're a priest forever. You're going to find those references throughout the book of Hebrews, and, and I'll just run you through it right quickly. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, we've, we've touched on that in those dogmatic statements he, he made in verse 3 of chapter 1. It says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it's repeated in our text, key text this morning, in verse 13, to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies, your, your, uh, enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a quotation from Psalm 110. You'll find it repeated in chapter 8, 8 verse 1. Speaking about the high priest, he said we have a high priest who is, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And in chapter 10 and verse 11, and comparing the priest who 
come continually for service. Verse 12, who can never actually atone for sin. In contrast, Christ is brought up in verse 12. He offers a single sacrifice, and what does he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. Psalm 110. In chapter 12, in verse 2, again, here an allusion to this 110 is mentioned again, looking to Jesus Christ, calling him the perfecter of our faith. He endures the cross, despises the shame, and then what happens? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews 12, 2. He's not any king. He's a mediatorial king. He is a priestly king seated at the right hand of God in authority and power. He is interceding on the behalf of his saints, and that's what this second declaration is about, and it's also woven through the book of Hebrews. Chapter 5 emphasizes the verse 4 of Psalm 110 when it says, Hebrews 5, 6, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 and verse 17, again, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And in case we forgot it, verse 21 of the same chapter, you are a priest forever. This is a key passage, Psalm 110. It's foundational to the book of Hebrews, and it is woven throughout its text. Now go back to, well, I'll tell you what. Let's go back to Psalm 110, but I, I, I want to um, jump to Matthew chapter 22 if you want to see it, where Christ quotes it in his ministry. But let's explain 110 in, its gr in greater detail about this royal priest. Psalm 110 is messianic, of course. The first declaration that is quoted multiple times in the book of Hebrews, as we've shown, emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. The Messiah is God. The Lord says, to my Lord. That's this declaration of, of deity. And this phraseology, the way it's said, demonstrates that this Messiah that would come forth, that is, Jesus Christ, would not only be a son of David, that is, have a human nature, but he would also be divine. Now, this is where I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. And we'll go back to Psalm 110 again, if I haven't confused you enough yet. But so that you can see it on your own, here is Jesus quoting Psalm 110. And then why we say it's an important passage that's used a lot in the New Testament. Here, Jesus Christ is making this very point about who the Messiah is, speaking of himself, to those that are his opponents, this would be the Pharisees. Matthew 22, and you drop down to verse 41. The Pharisees are gathered together, and they're going to ask Jesus a question. It isn't because they're, um, it, there isn't, um, they're asking him questions because they're trying to trap him up. 
So Jesus asked them a question. He turned the tables on them and handed them the Bible, if you will, and asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Remember, Christ is simply the Messiah, the, who they were looking for. It's the Greek word for Messiah, Hebrew. So, whose son is he? That's a straightforward question. And they say, a son of David. Notice verse 42. So then Jesus responds then, okay, he's a, he's a physical human descendant of David, King David, right? That's who the Messiah has to be. Here's where he emphasizes this quote from Psalm 110. How is it, verse 43, then that David in the spirit, and I'll stop right here, Jesus affirms the divine inspiration of the psalm. You see it? It is David's words. David wrote it, but he was born along by the Holy Spirit. These are not just musings of some gifted poet. These are divinely inspired words. Yes, in the thought and mind and heart of David, moved along by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus affirms the inspiration of the, that very text that you have before you. It is indeed the very voice of God and the only absolute assurance that you have God speaking and his voice is the text before you. No wonder when we read through this Psalm 119, as Jeremy read earlier, the, the, the words then are like gold. The words are like sweet, like honey. And if they're not precious to you, I would say spend some time in it. Spend some time with him and ask him to break through your cluttered heart so that you can see the value. Nevertheless, Christ is pointing out here that this is the very word of God. It is inspired. So, he, so then he says to them, based on the authority of what? The authority of God's word. How then is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to, to my Lord. How is this lesser son, if you will, his Lord? There's only one way, you know. He has to be God. That's the answer. So from the very beginning, this, this was promised and prophesied that, that a son of David in the flesh, would be God incarnate. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So he would be in all authority and power. So then if David calls him Lord, verse 45, how is he his son? And here's the answer. Do you see it? Crickets. He shut their mouth with the truth of God's word. They weren't able to answer him a word. You know why they weren't able to answer? Because they didn't want to give the answer. That's why. They know what the answer is. But to say the answer would condemn themselves, they would need to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. The answer is obvious. But in their, will, in their rebellion, in their self-will, they, they refuse to say it. More than that, they dare not ask him any more questions. They can't trip him up, and they can't answer his question. He has truly stopped them, and their mouths are silent. And those that would rebel against Christ and deny him 
their mouths will be silenced as well. Back to Psalm 110. This fleshing out the remainder of this text. Psalm 110, 2. This phraseology continues on then about this one, God incarnate, the Messiah, son of David, son of God. What's going to happen? Well, he's going to be sent forth from Zion, a mighty scepter, if you will. Great power is demonstrated. Notice he says he, he, will, he will rule in the midst of your enemies. This is speaking of when Christ would come forth, He would have all authority and rule. Isn't that what he said when he left? Descended on a high. All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Now go. Go and do what? Preach this gospel. Preach Christ. He has the rule. But, but where is this rule and reign in this domain, in this time period? Right now? He's ruling and reigning a bunch of amongst a bunch of rebels. His enemies will criticize him, reject him, spit in his face, and even crucify him. But can I tell you this right now? Jesus is sitting on his throne of authority. He has already sat down. It's already been accomplished. They, they, they are just spitting in the wind and afflicting really ultimately themselves and to their own judgment. And so would anyone who rejects this Lord. But in the midst of his enemies, he is still ruling. And how do we know even in this period of time that Christ is on his throne, that Christ is still ruling and reigning, although it looks like the wickedness and darkness is ruling and reigning, we're so concerned and understandably about the trajectory of the culture and things that are going on. But can I tell you this, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's in full authority. It may look like a great storm among us, but he is the one who has the voice to calm it at any time he should please. And we see glimpses of that calmness. We see glimpses of enemies turned to friends, glimpses of rebels repenting and turning to Christ. Go look in the mirror. Do you see him? N notice verse 3. Your people, here's a demonstration of his rule even right now. Your people will offer them freely in the day of your power. I it is pointing to an ultimate day when Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is pointing to an ultimate day when all Israel will be saved. But right now you'll see the ruling and reigning of Christ in the hearts of former enemies, which we all were. And now we submit to Christ, to his sovereignty, to his rule. What is our confession? Jesus is Lord. And it's done freely. It, it isn't through coercion. It isn't because we're required. No, no one's twisting your arm behind your back. 
No one's playing a hundred stanzas of just as I am to manipulate you to come to Christ. And Christ truly in his power will break the heart. It is called the power of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. This is why you love Christ. Why he's a friend and no longer an enemy. Why you wish to submit to him, although not perfectly. But this is the desire of your heart. And when you go astray, you want to come and confess him. And receive forgiveness. And communion with him. It is, it is freely because not your free will, so to speak, to, to make a good choice or a bad choice. It is the power of God unto salvation who changes your heart. So now you have a disposition of love for this Christ who you've never even seen, yet you love him. It is a great power that is ruling. We preach Christ and people come and repent and believe. Not through our word, not through our works, but through his. And notice how those who come freely, who have changed their disposition of their will through the power of God in the working in their heart, it's demonstrated then in what? In holy garments. And that points to the sanctification, if you will, of the believer. The robe of righteousness we wear is the robe of Christ. The admonition that we're given as believers is put off those dirty clothes and put on Christ. See, he, see Ephesians. This phrase here may be confusing. This next phrase, from the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth, will be yours. It's pointing to the Messiah in accomplishing this work. It's speaking of a restoration, if you will, a new birth, maybe. You can think of it in that way. A newness of life. The dew of your youth will be yours. It is though he accomplishes quickly, swiftly, and drinks of this and lifts up his head. He's talking about the saving nature of God's grace, the power of the gospel. Then a declaration then is made in verse 4 of Psalm 110 about the Messiah who is connected with Melchizedek, which we'll describe in detail later. But notice here in verse 4 of Psalm 110, there's a priest. The priest will continue forever, and it is after this unique order of Melchizedek. The first recipients of this message were admonished, by the way, if you read through the book of Hebrews, for not really catching the connection with Melchizedek. I hope we don't need that admonishment too much, so I challenge you to think on these things. But nevertheless, here, Melchizedek is, is, is mentioned. Melchizedek functioned as a priest, as priests would, 
function in a mediatorial role between God and man. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He points to this Messiah who would function in this different order. Different order than what? Than Aaron. And in the book of Hebrews, it will explain those differences. Ultimately, this is a, a different priesthood, a final one, that accomplishes atonement and thereby mediation between God and men. Notice it, it lasts how long? Forever. It is after this order. Melchizedek, by the way, Melech in Hebrew means king and Zadik is, is righteousness. So it is then described as king of righteousness. If you read the text, it also says he's later in, in what in Genesis it says he's king of Salem, that is a king of peace. So you have righteousness and peace. This is Christ who has given you righteousness through his atonement and then therefore peace with God, no longer enemies based on the peace that he has granted to you. This mediation, by the way, after this order was not like the former that had to be completed day to day that you would come and there are some worship gatherings in which they gather today, even this day, to, to represent a sacrifice as if this one atonement wasn't enough. We do have communion, but we're not representing it. We are remembering this very thing, what Christ has done. It's forever because God has sworn it so. This God who is an unchanging God, a God who cannot lie, he cannot change his mind, otherwise he wouldn't be God. What would he change it to? He couldn't change it to any better. He couldn't change it any worse. So the fact that he doesn't change his mind, for those that are united with Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. This is utter foolishness, as if it depended on you. It depends on Christ. And it's another th reason to, to, to fall down and worship him. Because of his unchanging nature. If it were about me, I'd cast, I'd probably cast me out. <laughs> Maybe some of you guys with me, I don't know. Maybe you'd cast me out, sure. But he said, I never will. Remember from John, what is it, 10? You're in my hand and I'm in the Father's hand. Other places it talks about the Holy Spirit sealing you into the day of redemption. Here the emphasis is that, that God has sworn this forever. It is, it is sealed in the very promises of God who cannot change his mind. This is the Messiah. This is who Jesus is from Psalm 110. But one other aspect, note this too. In Psalm 110, it closes out with verses 5 through 7. And it speaks about another aspect of Jesus that is woefully missed in our day. But it should be remembered. It's kind of horrifying. And this, bring, this causes me to have compassion on people that I would otherwise be annoyed by 
irritated by, upset by, people that are in rebellion against God, they're going to face a judgment that they can't imagine. They're going to have to stand before this Messiah, Jesus Christ. They'll have no mediation between the wrath of God and their sin. They'll have no high priest. They'll have no righteous one to stand before them. Notice the Lord is at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. This is demonstrating power and authority. And what will he do in that mode? He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Now he's pointing to the ultimate final day. That's why day is pointed out. There is a, there is a day of judgment coming. His wrath is on display now in, 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 uh, in some of the aspects of, of the world in which we live. But there will be a day when all authorities will be obliterated, those that are in rebellion against him. He'll demonstrate his power. And notice he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. A day of great judgment is coming. And if you know Christ and him as a great refuge, it should be on our lips then to proclaim him as, as God, to proclaim him as Lord, to proclaim him as a priest who will take your guilt Away. We talked this morning in our training hour, close it out with one of the problems. And then the people have today, although they may create all kinds of worldviews that imagine that God doesn't exist, that um, reality doesn't exist, that bio biology doesn't exist, or whatever it might be, they imagine these things. But they do exist. And Jesus is judge. And there is a way to get rid of your guilt. And it is only one way. And that is on this God-man, Jesus Christ, the royal priest. Everyone who comes to him, he will not cast out. You don't even have to be an expert theologian to hear and understand that. All you have to have is to f this free desire, a freed up desire then to confess Christ as Lord. Confess him now. A day of great judgment is promised and it, and it will come. And you will not stand. Instead, verse 7, and I was thinking about this this verse 7 earlier, I think I, I alluded to it, but here it says it, and I'll specifically put it in here. He will, he will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he'll lift up his head. The imagery there is, you know, in Christ's judgment, it, it, it isn't like um, there's any debate about it. it th th there's nothing there that, that, that you can say. You'll just shut your mouth. In, in great judgment, it, it's though... He's just going to 
the imagery is just lap up water while he's looking up and, and, and moving on. It's speaking of a swiftness to it. It says he'll lift up his head. That's the point. It's not going to linger. There is great triumph. And he is attentive to his work. And the call is for us to be attentive as well. Many people forget this aspect of Jesus. But remember, all judgment has been granted to him. And those that re reject him will be judged by him. Today is the day of grace. It is the day of mercy. It is the day of patience. But he has a cup of wrath. And it's filling up. And it will overflow certain judgment will follow. This Jesus, though, is described here in a text as a royal priest. To say that he's a priest means he's a mediator. Who is he going to mediate for? He will mediate for his people, and for those that are not, he will execute great judgment. That's what happens to those that rebel, great judgment. But what happens to those who submit to his lordship, who freely change their heart to confess Jesus Christ as Lord? This is where we're going to jump now back to Hebrews chapter 1 and finish this verse 14. And I hope you see the connection now. He, he's gone through this explanation of Christ demonstrated he's more excellent than creatures that they thought were great of great excellence, that is, of angels. He has a greater name. This one is greater. He is indeed God incarnate, the king of kings, the royal priest, as I've talked about. And what does this royal priest do? In relationship to angels, you find that in verse 14. Hebrews 1.14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who would inherit salvation? This rhetorical question gives us really uh, the answer to, to verse 4, doesn't it? He has a more excellent name than angels. Jesus is seated. He's seated on the throne of authority, and by contrast, the angels stand. They stand, and then they serve at the direction of this one, Jesus Christ. And verse 14 here, by the way, provides for us a disclosure, if you will, of perhaps the essential purpose in this time and day for angelic beings? What, what are they there for? They are a created order. We talked about them before, remember. They're, they're not humans. They're a different created order. They are, they are elect forever. They cannot sin. After the rebellion of Satan and 
the angelic host that went with him, we call demons. That was a day in which judgment was sealed. Those that didn't rebel were sealed to righteousness. But what do they do? A fixed number, a lot of them, a heavenly host as it's described. What, what, what are they doing? Besides worshiping, we know that. If you're in the presence of God, you would worship too. It's a, it's a natural response, if you will, unless you're racked with sin, which your natural response would be fear, and he has to say, you're not. Right? And when you do, then you recognize and you're enabled to worship him. The angelic hosts are sent forth by this royal priest. They're to engage in and be the very instruments of the administration of salvation of Christ's saints, his royal priesthood, his redeemed. Th- this, this word for ministering, spirits, the ministry, it, that word itself, it refers to like a specific office, a job, if you will, a title. They have a specific job and a title to do. And what is their job to do? It is to serve. That's, I think your translation says minister. It's the word from which we get deacon, the second one, where it says they, they are to minister to those who will re- inherit salvation. They are to, to serve. That's a word we get for like waiting tables type serve. They are to be instruments of Christ. They're sent forth for a specific task, a job, and that is to serve. To serve who? Those who will be saved. These angelic beings then that are sent forth are sent forth as a heavenly host, a multitude, plurality, if you will. Some people get the idea here that each person might have some sort of guardian angel, and and the text of Scripture doesn't indicate that at all. Instead, it actually indicates something much better, that you're going to be ministered by a whole host of angelic beings. Notice there's spirits, too, in the text. You can't see a spirit. God does grant a manifestation of them for his purposes in certain times. It's rare, but it has happened in Scripture. At least the seeing or the awareness of them, even in their spiritual sense, is precisely, I'm not sure how it works. I won't get into, I don't want want to um, spend too much time in this text, but I'll give you the reference and I'll just remind you of it, perhaps you remember, from 2 Kings chapter 6. Elijah, and that's Elisha the prophet, who demonstrated much, uh, a number of miracles where his, his work, Elijah and Elisha, his work was authenticated by miracles. He was surrounded at one point in 2 Kings 6 by the king of Syria. There are greater forces than him, and the servant of Elisha was scared to death. He thought they were going to certainly die. Elisha wasn't worried because he had a divine 
revelation from God that he would indeed be protected. And he prayed that God would open the eyes of the servant to see the heavenly host that was about them to protect them. The servant then was enabled by God to actually see. And he describes it as, you can imagine, they're surrounded by all these Syrian soldiers, but then the servant sees on the mountaintops and all around them, as they describe it, a heavenly host, horses and chariots, if you will, chariots of fire, Second Kings chapter 6. The disclosure, that is the opening of his eyes, is the miracle. The fact that the angels were around about, beloved, is a common occurrence. It's been going on all the time. You just don't know it. He doesn't want you to know it. He has revealed it in Scripture. What has he revealed? Well, they're ministering spirits. How are they going to minister? It's not your business. It's, the, it's, it's Christ. But know this for a fact, and we have evidence from Scripture and promises made that God will protect his people. And a great way in which that's done is through holy angels. But note this. These holy angels aren't acting in and of themselves. They are directed by whom? Christ the priest, the king, on his throne, mediating for, on behalf of his people. Does that clarify a few passages in Psalms? I'll give you a couple. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Remember Satan used that against Jesus to ask him to presume upon God's guardian protection through angelic beings? And Jesus' response is, well, you don't tempt the Lord. But the truth still exists. He sends forth ministering spirits who are encamped around, if you will, are, and guarding, protecting those that are his. They're the instrumental cause here of the deliverance of the elect both protection from temporal dangers that may cause harm and removing them from situations in which you might be harmed. Psalm 91, 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. We don't presume on God's care for us and engage foolishly by casting ourselves into harm's way. But what you should know is that in the midst of whatever trouble you might be in, whatever raging circumstances that you might be in, beloved, you're not alone. You might be physically alone at, at any time, but I assure you the angel of the Lord camps about. Why? Because Christ is ever with you. And he would even send the, the ministry of angels to be safeguarded to the point and when it is your time to be up. We, we will all perish and die at some point in time. But a great reason why you haven't until you come to Christ is the work of these angels but note this is the work of christ 
as he directs them. It is directed towards those who will inherit salvation, verse 14. Angelic servants of God, they're, they're tasked to minister to the heirs. And that's a great way to think about those who are in Christ. I'm not trying to puff you up if you're in Christ. But I think it's helpful for us to all also realize who we are in Christ. Not in and of ourselves, because we can get so deflected by who we actually are and and think pity on ourselves to a great degree. Oh, I wish I was a better Christian. I wish I was this, that, or the other thing. I understand that. But, but push all that aside. No matter what, if you're in Christ, you're an heir. You're an heir to salvation. This language is, is used a lot to talk about the heir of what? The heir of Christ, his inheritance, him. I'll, I'll just read off some text random quickly. Matthew 25, he talks about, Jesus specifically talks about those that are blessed by his Father, Who what will happen to them. They will inherit the kingdom that is prepared from the foundation of the world. It's not happenstance. This is a birthright given to those that are Christ. We're, we're blessed in Christ, Ephesians 1, verse 3, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, what are they? Verse 11 of, he, of Ephesians 1, in, in him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Galatians 3, 29. If you're in Christ, beloved, you are then Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All the promises made have been, and, and all the requirements for those promises, by the way, have been fulfilled in Christ, the only one. And if you're in Christ, guess what you get? All of them fulfilled, every one of them. That's the inheritance in Christ. Heirs according to promise, Colossians 1.12. We give thanks to the Father, Paul would tell the church at Colossae, because you will receive inheritance as your reward. 1 Peter 1, 4, that we are called to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I don't care if you lose everything. Do you have this inheritance? Are you putting your hope in anything else? Where is your treasure? I'm not talking about being irresponsible about life and things that you do. This is a, just a different perspective to recognize who Jesus Christ is as a royal priest and sends forth these angelic beings to be instrumental in the protection of those who would be heirs, who would be inheritors of his promises. We, we don't know much about royalty in our culture, but we have read about it. So you can imagine what it would be like to be a servant in the house of a king. And the king has a bunch of kids. They're little. They get in trouble. And the servant might have to discipline them, teach them, guide them. But that servant who is doing that is just there for a temporary time. 
the position of these children are far higher than that servant, (laughs) even though they must cooperate and learn from them. That's the imagery here. Yes, difficult, struggling through, no doubt, at times, but recognizing, not in pride, your pedigree, as if you earned it, inherited it by your physical birth. No, this is all through Christ. It's what he has granted. When Jesus spoke to the churches in Revelation, he is described in Revelation 5 as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Remember that when we went through Hebrews? That is the chief. The ruler of kings of the earth. Of course he is. To him, though, what does he do? He loves us and freed us from, his sin, from our sins by his blood. And is that all it is? No. That isn't all it is. He is, Revelation 1, 6, made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. You want to say amen, don't you? Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray we would get a clearer glimpse of Jesus Christ, our royal king, our holy priest, our mediator of this great covenant and communion with you. I pray for your people. If anyone is outside of Christ, may they see him in his glory now. Forsake all others and look to Christ, confess him as Lord. I pray for those of us indeed, may, may we have a greater resolve to find our refuge in Christ alone and revel in the gift of the inheritance of Christ that we have received. I pray this in his name. Amen. Beloved, I want you to take just a minute to reflect on what we've discussed privately where you're at. If you need to confess Christ as Lord right now, confess to him, not to me. Otherwise, worship and praise him and take a moment to think on these things. Father, we thank you in Christ that indeed we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for Christ's own possession. May we revel in all that Christ has done and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. All right.
part, I want to change songs now. What was the song you just played? It's to see if these violinists in can handle it. Last time you did. It's called Stump the Violinists. But you girls are great. What's that hymn? Look on men. Before the throne of God. What hymn is that? It's 448. And sorry I like to do this occasionally, but you can bear with me. I just quit playing good hymns and I don't have to do this. 448? All right, Jerry, come and lead us. Congregation, let's stand and think about Christ before the throne, even now. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May the whole, your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may you always trust the faithful one who calls you and will surely accomplish your redemption. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.